Ever feel so frustrated and discouraged when you didn't do what you knew you should have done? Instead, you end up doing the very thing you knew you shouldn't do again. I remember talking to a parent. Uh, this parent in the family doesn't go to our church. Uh, and he and his wife caught their 12-year-old boy looking at pornography. Apparently, by the time he, he was found out, he had been looking at it for an entire year. And, uh, you know, they had the conversation. Of course, they said the conversation was hard to have. But there was a breakthrough when the boy finally admitted his addiction. And out of fear, out of frustration, and out of need, he asked, how do I stop? The boy knew he kept on doing what he did not want to do. You ever feel like that? Frustrated and discouraged, doing the wrong things, unable to do the right things. You don't have to struggle with pornography to know what that boy knew, I'm sure. Fear, frustration, desperation, need. Maybe the good that you want to do is, is exercise simply self-control to stop gorging yourself on food, for example, for, for your own satisfaction. Maybe it's to stop disrespecting your employer and to show up to work on time or something like that. Maybe it's to say no, right? You want to draw boundaries uh, with somebody. Regardless of reason, if you've ever been frustrated with the fact that you keep on going against yourself, you are actually in good company. Because Paul the Apostle, the author of the book of Romans, the book that we've been preaching through, um, he knew what this was like. And if you have ever wanted to know why you do this as well, well, today, friends, we have an example. We have an explanation. We have an explanation for why we do what we do and why we feel the way we feel when we do what we don't want to do. Our passage today says that it is because of sin. Simple answer. It is because of sin. And I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. That's Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. If you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you, you can be found on page 943. 943. If you are visiting with us today and, uh, you know, maybe you're exploring Christianity, you're new to Christianity, sin is simply just part of, of human nature. It's part of fallen man. Romans explains that all people are by nature in sin. We are sinners by nature ever since Adam and Eve, right? Because of the one sin, sin and death, Romans says, entered into the world. And so therefore, being positively inclined to sin, we therefore choose to rebel against the king, our creator, our very own maker. And the Bible says that man, apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. We are hostile to God and therefore deserve God's judgment and condemnation. So if you're visiting with us today, you're exploring Christianity, sin is simply part of human nature after the fall of man. And sin has wreaked so much havoc in man, in us, I'm sure you know, it is therefore in our best interest to understand it. What is this sin? We want to see how it works. And ultimately, we want to do these things so that we might be saved from it, so that we might be reconciled to God. This is a huge reason why Paul wrote Romans. He wrote the letter to help people understand, yes, God's judgment is coming upon the unrighteous. 
But he wrote also to tell us that God has also made a way to be saved. And that is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. From our passage this morning, we come to further understand, and this is the title, The Ways and Wiles of Indwelling Sin. That's our main topic today, The Ways and Wiles of Indwelling Sin. It's kind of a funny word, wiles, but if, you know, if you've ever seen uh, The Roadrunner, for example, you have The Roadrunner, and then you have Wiley Coyote. The Wiley Coyote is called Wiley Coyote because he has uh, cunning devices. Uh, he has devious operations that he uses to bring down The Roadrunner. Friends... We are looking at the wiles of sin, as sin ho- hopes to take down us and to turn us away from Jesus Christ. And I hope that you are frustrated right now. I hope that you are frustrated with your inability. I hope you're able to look at the mirror and see that you cannot do what you sometimes want to do. And that is because of sin. And we want to look at the enemy within and therefore turn to see the Savior who is strong enough to deliver us. I'll go ahead and read our passage. Actually, I'm going to read from verse 7. So I'll read from 7 all to the way, all the way until the end, uh, which is verse 25. So 7 to 25. Paul writes there, picking up in this argument, <clears throat> he writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So if I find it to be a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In this section, Paul the Apostle clarifies for us that no matter the situation, right? so imagine staring at your own sin, your own inability, he says that God and His law are never to blame. The law does expose sin. Maybe you know, right? Whatever law you might live to exposes your own sin. But God and His law are never to blame. We are to blame. Sin is to blame, he says, not the law. 
Remember, Paul was going around teaching people this gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so the moralist, right, the pious Jew that's hearing Paul talk about this free grace, right, these, these, these pious Jews, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe that he is the, the Messiah. But they believe, some believed in salvation by their own righteousness, basically. That the more good they do, therefore, the better off they are with God. So they hear this gospel of grace and say, what are you talking about? How can you be insulting the holy law that I submit myself to, this holy law that I live under and through it I achieve righteousness? Are you saying that the law, even though it was given to expose and to intensify sin, is sinful? It's bad? Are you saying that the holy law of God brings sin and death? And that's who he's talking about. That's, that's, that's why you hear these rhetorical questions there in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin, right? So what Paul's doing is stepping into the, into the mind of the objector. He's throwing up an objection, and then he's knocking it down. By no means, of course, the law is not sin. And then he comes to a different sort of question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Are you saying the holy law of God brings death to me? And that's what to blame. He, he not throws up that objection and knocks it down. By no means. It was sin producing death. So there, he exonerates the law. The law of God is good. It is upright. It is holy. That's what it says there in verse 12. But then he zeroes in on sin. What is it that brings death? What is it that is bad? He zeroes in on sin, its ways, and its wiles. This brings us to our first point here. Point number one, sin is the one that brings death. Sin brings death and condemnation. He's not just talking about physical death when he talks about death. And he says this once again there in verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin that was producing death. When he talks there about death, he's ultimately talking about not only physical death, but also spiritual death. He's talking about eternal death. In chapter 6, verse 21, it speaks there very clearly about how sin brings death. That is judgment, eternal judgment. Again, what he's doing is he's laying the blame right where it belongs, right on sin, not on God and his law. He's just picking up where he left off from verses 7 to 12. That's why I read those verses there. Verse 12 ends there. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Just picking up where he has left off. Now, once again, he is writing to pious Jews here who, think, who are trying to appreciate that the law is good. Right? That's where these questions are coming from. Like, hey, are you saying this stuff about the law of God? Right? They're trying to appreciate it. They just don't quite know how. And so Paul is correcting and encouraging their thinking. It is good. Let's look at sin. But today, you know, a lot of people, they don't even care about rules. Right? He's talking to pious Jews. But today, today's age, though... People oftentimes don't appreciate rules. We don't appreciate laws. But again, if you're visiting with us, or maybe even you're a new Christian and you want some correction here, Christians are supposed to appreciate laws and rules. We're supposed to appreciate laws and rules. Romans 7 says that God's laws are, in fact, once again, holy, righteous, and good. And of course they are because they come from a holy and righteous, good God. All that proceeds from the mouth of God is of God. It is holy, righteous, and good. So if you are wrestling Right with your own inability, you look at that mirror and you know that you cannot do what you want to do, what you know is right. right? You've got to know that one road that you could go down is to end up hating your own laws, to end up hating your own rules. 
to end up hating your own goals, right? And you probably know that instinct, especially if you're so discouraged, right? You can't do what you want to do. You probably want to hate your rules. Here, Paul says, look, the Christian should never do that. Laws are good. God's word is good. All of his commandments are good. Now, what he's talking about here when he talks about the law, he's talking about the law of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, talking also about the Ten Commandments, right? But we can expand and think of all the commands of God, all of God's word here. He says that they are good. I'm sure you have some sort of law in your own household, right? What we're trying to do now is appreciate law. I'm sure you have some sort of law in your own household, or one day you will. Well, friends, so does God. Just as I'm sure uh, that your law was given in order to uphold some particular value, right? for some particular reason you make these laws to uphold some particular value, so God's laws are given to uphold a particular value. And that value is God himself. It is all that is good, all that is loving, all that is holy, all that is righteous. And so that's what God's laws help us move towards. He teaches us how to obey, how to live. He also shows us where we aren't living that way. And so Jesus, he comes along in relation to what this good is that all the law moves towards, that all the law supports. And he just summarizes it saying, love God and love one another. That's why all of the laws that you can ever think of in the Old Testament, every commandment, all of God's word, all those things move towards love God and love one another. So he says the law is very clearly it is good. As any loving child would think their loving parents' rules are good in the ideal situation, so Christians living underneath God, so Christians who embrace their loving God's, their loving God, embrace their loving God's rules. They're loving God's law, as God's law comes from God himself. And if you're visiting, once again, I'm sure you know that not all rules and laws and boundaries are bad, even the ones that point out your failure. In relation to how we know, you know, let's say, for example, rules, laws, and boundaries are not always bad. Think about Valentine's Day. You don't need a valentine to, to understand this illustration. But, um, you know, if you want, do you, or, or do you want your Valentine's love to discriminate? In, in today's day and age, people say, oh, all discrimination is bad. Well, is it really? Do we really want to say that? Do you want your Valentine to discriminate in his or her love? Do you want his or her love to have boundaries, very clear boundaries? I would say, of course. I would never say, Melanie, oh, forget it, you know, just don't discriminate with your love. Me, I'm just like every other guy, just go. Go ahead and do whatever you want to. That would be unwise. That would be incredibly foolish, and who wants that kind of love? No, I love Melanie's bounded love. Melanie loves my bounded love. I want, you want, I assume, your Valentine to have a law attached to their love. It's pretty clear, right? And when the Valentine's love has boundaries... You, as the beloved, come to thrive in that love, don't you? All of a sudden, wow, we're seeing all these different types of benefits by bounded love. We can thrive in this love because wholehearted devotion is what I receive. That's what I'm provided, and I get security. I get comfort because they are fully committed to me. I am fully committed to them only. Well, that's what the Christian knows. God's love is bound to who he is. 
as he is holy, righteous, and good, so his laws are holy, righteous, and good. And Christians experience all these benefits, right, from that type of love. And, and that just beckons us to read Romans chapter 8, which we're not going to do. But, you know, I want to go ahead and meditate on Romans chapter 8. He's talking about all the benefits of bounded love, all the love that comes from Jesus Christ to a particular people who repent and believe, repent and believe on Jesus Christ. So many different benefits, life from the Spirit, adoption, so many different things. We cling to the promises of God. It is a wonderful thing. The point for us is that we all know that law is good. And so God is just saying here that the law of God is good. Now, we will talk about how sin brings death. After all, that is what it says in verse 13. But it's good to note uh, something that will help us understand this passage today. You know, I'm sure you notice here, if you look there on verse 13 um, and following, Paul uses this I and me language. Right? What, what's he talking about? Who was he talking about? Because, I mean, if we're looking here at verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? We might naturally think right, he might be a Christian here. But then he also says, like in verse 4, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. We might wonder, okay, well, maybe he's talking about his non-Christian experience. Um, so those really are the two options. Like he could be talking about a Christian. He could be talking about a non-Christian. Uh, I actually think that he is speaking about himself before he was a Christian. Before he was a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian here and you think that Romans chapter 7 is speaking about Paul as a Christian, that's okay. You know, you, you, what we need to do is just go ahead and study the evidence and then come to our own conclusion and then go ahead and apply that. The wonderful thing, whether you believe that he's writing about a Christian or whether you're thinking about he, him writing to the pre-Christian experience, it doesn't actually change the main point. It doesn't. So we can just go on preaching this passage and then apply it appropriately. Um, but because I think that he's writing about the non-Christian experience today, a lot of the application is going to go to the non-Christian, the visiting, or for Christians in effort to reach out to the non-Christian. But anyway, so you can rest confident, right? Even if you think he's writing about a Christian, you can rest confident, right? It doesn't change the main point of the passage. The thrust here is that the law of God is not bad. Sin is bad. Sin is to blame. Um, now, some of you guys at this point might say, well, wait a, moment, wait a minute. Are you saying that Christians don't struggle with sin? Because that's what we read here. I do what I don't want to do, and the stuff I do, I do know about, I don't do. Um, you know, are you saying that Christians don't struggle with sin? Well, clearly the Bible says that Christians struggle with sin. Galatians chapter 5, we know that we still wrestle with this kind of stuff. And besides that, right, if we are growing in holiness... We will never ultimately be free from sin, indwelling sin. So the struggle that's going on here, we still struggle with. But this doesn't ultimately mark our lives like it does the non-Christian. So just good to know that. Anyways, if you want to talk more about this, if he's speaking about a non-Christian or he's speaking about a, a Christian, I'd be happy to talk to you more about this later on. But here's how I understand the passage that I think helps us here. I think we see what Paul's doing in chapters 7 and 8. We see that reflected in what he does in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, right? So chapters 7 and 8 correspond with Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Go ahead and look at Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. In 5, he says there, for while we were still living in the flesh, 
That's like a category in my opinion. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were out work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's non-Christian experience. But then he switches there as he goes from 5 to 6, and he contrasts life in the flesh to life in the spirit. That is life with Jesus. I know Christ. I know God. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So 5 and 6 are contrasting one another. Now you go over to the rest of Romans chapter 7 and then 8. Romans 7 speaks of life in the flesh. That's why he's talking about there in Romans chapter 7 verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. It's like Paul is stepping into the non-Christian experience. And he's saying, let me go ahead and use myself in the present example, or present tense. And say, you know what, okay, this is life in the flesh. I am of the flesh, let's say. And then he goes on and details that. But then you see him transition from life in the flesh to life in the spirit in Romans chapter 8. Nineteen times in Romans chapter 8, Paul uses this life in the spirit language. Just go ahead and look there. Uh, Verse 1. There is therefore now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. And then he even has this contrast there in verse 3. You see flesh, you see flesh. But then he goes back to, well, those who have their minds on the Spirit. This is how they live. So that's how I understand it. The rest of Romans chapter 7, what we're looking at now is the non-Christian experience. Romans chapter 8, though, is the Christian's experience. Again, if you want to talk about that more, I'd be happy to a little bit later on after the sermon. Uh, So anyways, we can keep that in mind as we finish off 7 and then as we move on into 8. It contrasts the life of the Spirit with life in Christ, or sorry, life in the flesh, with life in the spirit. And ultimately, friends, this is supposed to get us to hate sin. No matter what your interpretation is here, Christian, non-Christian, we're supposed to hate sin. That's why he says there, there's a law that, look there in verse 21, I find that to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So you're staring in that mirror, discouraged that you can't do what you want to do. Evil lies close at hand. It is sin's fault here. So to recap, The first reason why sin is so wretched, looking at the ways and wiles of sin, is that sin brings death, condemnation, and judgment. Second thing, point number two, sin uses the good as an instrument for evil. Actually, these two first points are really recapping what we preached on from verses 7 to 12. But anyways, this point is made there in 7 8. Go ahead and look there. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You see the instrument there that sin uses to bring about more sin, which leads to death? It's actually the good commandment of God. We see sin's mode of operation here. You want to look at yourself here. You see sin's mode of operation. It co-ops evil, or sorry, it co-ops the good for its own evil intentions. And we learn so much about indwelling sin from this passage, as well as the rest of Romans in general, and things are getting complicated. Sinners don't think right about God because of sin. That's what we learned in Romans chapters 1 and 2. But now, as sin uses God's good law for its evil purposes, it's going to be all the more harder to think about God and His law. Right? We already don't think well about God just just by sin. And now, sin is using good for evil, and it's going to confuse us even more. So we need to be clear here about the ways and wiles of sin. No wonder it is so easy for us, maybe even you, to blame the good law and the God of the law. 
in your discouragement and in your failure, in your own inability. Non-Christian, do you see your, the deceitfulness of sin here that resides in yourself? This deceitfulness is in you. Sin co-ops the good and twists it for evil. Now Romans chapter 7 is talking about uh, the law of Moses. But by way of application, it's important to know that sin does the same with the rules of your conscience. Right? So uh, Romans says that everybody here, Christian, non-Christian, has been given a conscience. Now, indeed, we need to inform our conscience with God's word and the truth of God. But nevertheless, you do have a conscience, the ability to determine right from wrong. And a lot of us know generally um, what is right from wrong. It means that you could have a really good aim to shoot for, but sin makes you give up. Think about, think about your own conscience here. Think about your own experience, right? You could have a really good aim to shoot for, but sin makes you want to give up. Or sin could twist your motivation for aiming for that in the first place. Or sin could get you to doubt that the law is really good in the first place. And then all of a sudden, what are you left doing? You're left just throwing away all of that law, all of those things in your conscience. And so your conscience becomes seared all the more. Take divorce, for example. Maybe your God-given conscience knows something, something general about God's law, uh, that it is not good to get divorced, that it is sin to be divorced, except for certain biblical circumstances. Except for certain biblical circumstances. So let's just say you have a desire to remain married. But yet there's something else in you that really wants to blow up your marriage. You just want to end it. And so you go back and forth, right? Indwelling sin may straight up try and convince you that divorce is the best thing to do. And for unbiblical reasons. And so you therefore go on and try and justify your own sin knowing that it is wrong. It's better for us all, you say, because we have irreconcilable differences. Not only might sin try and convince you that divorce is the best thing to do, indwelling sin might also get you to doubt the truth in the first place. God's word doesn't really apply to me anymore because we live in the 21st century. This stuff was written, you know, 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> indwelling sin could also get you to twist your motivation to stay married, right? Maybe you don't even want to learn to love your husband again. Maybe your heart's already checked out, and you don't say, yes, I want to remain married because that is what is good, and my Christian friends tell me that's what God would want me to do, assuming that there's no sin involved or, or uh, biblical reasons to get divorced, and you nevertheless <clears throat> say something like, I'd actually like to get, I'd like to stay married because I get to keep my status points with my married friends. Because then all my married friends would think bad of me. And so you do what is right for all the wrong reasons. So you want to know why you don't do what you know you should do? Or you do it with an impure heart? Well, friends, it's because of indwelling sin. This is sin using the good the generally good things that you desire against you in order to enslave you. So your rule, assuming it's not a sinful rule, your rule is not bad. And when it speaks of God's law, Romans 7 says God's law is not bad. Sin is bad. This is why Paul takes the time to explain why God gave the law. You look there in verse 13. He says there, it was sin, the middle of 13. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, 
in order. Purpose is that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all the measure, all the more. He says that God gave the law not only to teach us how to live, but also to expose and intensify sin. You see, friends, all, all, right here, if you're looking at what is this Christianity, who are we as Christians? The Christian see that the law actually is God's help. This is like me and sin wrestling with one another, trying to figure out what's going on in my own, in my own self, and then God helps man by giving a third party an objective assessment of what's going on in myself. I can't do what I want to do. Why is that? What is it? I have this inability. And then God helpfully provides the law and says, of course, you have inability because you sin. The law is good. It it, it is of great help to man here. Looking at verse 13 once again. It produces death through what is good in order, purpose, that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Exposing, intensifying sin. This is stuff we've been talking about for the last number of weeks in Romans here. But these are the reasons why the law of God is good. Our holy God helps us see our sinful selves. And the law of God can be trusted as it comes from God himself. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. In other words, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And because it is from God, as verse 12 says, it is therefore holy, righteous, and good. And for those with eyes to see, the law works its purposes in us, exposing and intensifying our sin. And God helps us see our own sinful condition for what it is. It is the sin of man that brings death. Verse 14, look at that again. For we know that the law is spiritual, right? Clearly, God's law is not to blame. He says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Sold under sin. That's really strong language here. So if you're wondering who man is, right, you are sold under sin, the non-Christian. Remember, uh, Paul here, I think he's stepping into the shoes of the non-Christian self in order to illustrate sin's ways and wiles to the readers. He's speaking of a time when he was still enslaved to sin, Romans 6, verse 6. And he knew what it was like to be a moral person, right, to have God's law. And illustrating the dynamic inside the moral, pious person, he says there in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Let's just actually continue reading there, 16, 17, 18. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, if sin is in me, working in me to sin, of course it's not the law, the law is good. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We've seen that sin brings death. Sin uses good for evil. Now, number three, we see that sin incapacitates good desires. Sin incapacitates good desires. Thinking back to the introduction... You know, whether you consider yourself moral or not, right, I'm sure you identify to some degree with, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, right? Do you identify with that? We all have had certain things that we think are good, things we want to do, things we do not want to do. And even though we have things we don't want to do, we keep on doing them. Speaking of our own experience, we say to ourselves, right, haven't you ever said in the moment, right, I don't understand my own actions. 
I don't understand why I do what I do, right? So I have had non-Christian friends um, know that cheating on their loved ones is wrong. They come to me and say, man, Jeremy, I can't believe that I did that again. And they don't only do that one time. They do that two times. They do that three times. They continue to do that even though they know what they should not do. They see the hurt that causes their loved ones. They see the hurt that causes their family members and even their own selves. But yet they choose to continue to cheat. Another non-Christian friend reached out to me. I remember this one time because he was addicted to smoking marijuana. And he wanted help. And he called me just out of nowhere. I hadn't talked to him in years and years and years. He said, Jeremy, I just need you to come and reach out to me and I need help. So after sitting down with this guy for an hour, telling me about how he got into it, telling me about how he couldn't stop, how he needed help stopping, stopping this, and how addiction was affecting his ability to perform at school, how addiction was affecting his ability to, to perform at work. And not only, the, not only that, though, but he got, they got to telling me about how he actually became a dealer. He said, because I can actually get my own stuff cheaper if I buy it in mass quantities, so I might as well do that because it saves me money, and I might as well just start selling the thing anyways. Right? He's telling me all of this stuff for an hour. But he ended up telling me that he actually didn't want my help. He just wanted to know that he could be helped if he really decided to give it up. He knew he needed to give it up. He just couldn't give it up. I sat there, and the guy had tears in his eyes. And he said, I can't do what I know I should do. But the very wrong thing I know, I keep on doing it with tears in his eyes. That's inability. That's sin incapacitating his own very good desires as a non-Christian, as someone who is ruled and enslaved to sin. In all of these examples, there is some desire to stop, but no ability to follow through. Isn't it interesting there? Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, friends, I'm not saying, if you're here as a non-Christian, I'm not saying that the non-Christian cannot stop cheating on their loved ones cannot stop smoking marijuana, cannot stop watching pornography. I actually think they can. You can stop doing things. But the main point that Paul is making is that indwelling sin is the problem and we need deliverance from our sinful selves. Even if you were to stop doing that one thing, those desires are just going to transfer to something else. The main point, once again, the main problem here that he's bringing up is the problem of our own indwelling sin and we need deliverance from our own sinful selves. We all have the desire, but no real permanent ability to stop. Friends, I don't know about you, but I find this explanation incredibly freeing. I find this incredibly freeing, actually, because it helps us understand ourselves better. Now, when I say it's freeing, I don't mean it it, it gets me off the hook, as if we were not responsible for our sin, we do not want to read this passage and think like, oh, okay, then, I'm ir- then, I, then I don't have to have, take responsibility over my sin. Now, you might be tempted to think that. Look at 17 and 20. This verse is repeated. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You could totally take those, that verse out of context and be like, hey, yeah, that's awesome, right? I don't, even do, I don't even do what I do. Like, it's not even me. I'm not held responsible by this stuff. It's sin that ultimately is holding me responsible. Or that's uh, enslaving me, and so I'm not going to have to give account for what God says. That's wrong. To do that would, to be, 
would to be uh, misunderstanding all that Paul has said already. He says, all people have sinned against God. None, there is none who does good. No one is righteous. When he says there in 17 and 20, these repeated verses, he's simply referring to the fact that there is more going on in the human soul than a simple desire to do good. He's getting us to look at, my soul is actually really messed up. That's what he's saying there when he talks about, it's no longer I who do it. All he's saying, once again, is that that man is not a blank slate. Here, the I is the sinful state, man in his sinful state. Once again, this is really freeing because finally we have an explanation in the face of our own inescapable failure. Our failure to do what God requires of us, as known maybe even for you by your God-given conscience and through the law of God. I mean, friends, don't you know that it is so frustrating and discouraging to know that something, that good thing, to, to even aspire to it, but then we just go and fail those expectations for ourselves, maybe even the expectations that other people have of us that are genuinely good, and especially the expectations that God has for us. And this applies to the good person just as much as it does to those who are addicted to, you know, the weed, the really bad people, the murderers, those who watch porn and things like that. Maybe you have committed yourself to loving your wife more. But no matter how much you commit, no matter how much you say, no matter how much you try, you still end up messing up. And along with that mess up comes the guilt and the failure, and the shame, and so you beat yourself up for those things. Along with your failure, you hurt others, you cause confusion and frustration and self-loathing towards yourself. Bitterness rises up in your own heart towards the other person. Maybe you commit to being present more with your children, and yet you seem to find yourself loving your work more and more, loving yourself more, loving your career more, needing a little bit more time in the bathroom to play your video games more. Along with that comes more distance between you and your child, frustrated, your frustrated spouse who wants you to engage, and you even know that your children will be better off if they had more time with you. Friends, if you are doing what you don't want to do, and if you are not doing what you want to do, I'm guessing you know something of the general remorse expressed here in our passage. Remorse because of inescapable failure. Remorse because you are the cause of suffering in others, your family, your friends, and your employers. You have a general desire to do what is right, but no lasting and permanent ability to carry it out. It's not because you don't have enough of what the leadership gurus are telling you you need of. You need like more grit. You need more morning routines. You just need to get after it. You need more time for headspace and meditation. No, it's not those things, friends. You cannot do what you want to do because of sin, because of indwelling sin, because sin incapacitates your very own good desires, and it does so that it might drag you away from God and enslave you. Which brings us to number four, sin enslaves. Sin enslaves. If you follow this life cycle of sin as it incapacitates good desires, when you face sin's effects, your own lack of ability, your inescapable failure, I mean, what are your own solutions here, right? Really, think about your own sin when, you have, when you're so discouraged, looking in the mirror once again, knowing that you have failed, right? What are your options to rectify the problem? 
Once again, you've done the very thing you hate and you stand there having screwed up again and let yourself down and others and God. How do you go about rectifying the problem? If your salvation to the problem of you is yourself and your own self-righteousness, what do you do in the face of failure, right? We all know what this is like, Christian and non-Christian. Maybe you blame yourself. Maybe you insist on blaming yourself and you, you heap on greater condemnation on yourself and you try to bear the weight of your own sin all upon your own shoulders. And so you therefore become enslaved to guilt, enslaved to shame, enslaved really to your own failure. And maybe you guys know what that's like. Maybe you've walked that road so long already. And now you're actually living in this heap of discouragement. Eventually, right, that person comes to realize they can't bear that weight by themselves. And if they don't kill themselves first for their failure to fill the Savior's shoes, they instead blame that which exposes them, don't they? Maybe you blame the standard that exposes your own failure. In effort to be free, right, you cast off the law. You cast off the God of the law. And that's exactly what sin wants us to do. Sin accuses us of our failures, bringing all this guilt and shame. And sin seeks, us, seeks to convince us to reject God and the very help that he provides. That is the law. That's what sin does. To rectify the problem of your own unrighteousness, the self-righteous work harder for their righteousness. And then the discouraged and the tired, right? You just go on and reject God's righteousness altogether. Friends, both solutions work to roadblock sinners from seeking the righteousness of Christ. Both solutions work to roadblock sinners from seeking the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that you need. Both roads leave us all further enslaved to sin, now, with all this talk about guilt and shame, you, know, you might be wondering, like, are we supposed to feel this, these types of things? The short answer of this all is yes. The short answer of it all is yes. These things, right, this guilt and shame can be really good because they bring us to a right understanding of our sinful selves. You look there in verse 18, right? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He stands there as a man underneath God guilty a man who has already sinned against this God. You look there at 17 and 20, right? This is sin inside of me that does what it does. Paul is very matter-of-fact in, in embracing his wrongdoing. He embraces his guilt and his shame, and uh, the problem here is himself. It is sin. That's why he says there in verse 24, wretched man that I am right understanding of our sinful selves is what Paul wants us to come to. But that is not all that the knowledge of our sinful selves is to do. In other words, if your guilt and shame only stops there at pronouncing your guilt, then friends, actually, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. You aren't letting it do what it's supposed to do. Not only in the face of sin are we to know, wretched man that I am, look there in verse 24, we are to go on and cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? So, friends, if your guilt and shame for not doing what you know is right and good only stops at sinful me, I am a sinner, and therefore you don't turn to the Savior, but that's not godly guilt. That's not godly shame. 
Godly guilt and shame will drive me to seeking the Savior. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And you have here this answer in verse 25. This really is a summary is a summary of praise given the gospel. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who will deliver me from this body of death. Jesus Christ. When you are face to face with your own inescapable failure, you are not to work harder for your own righteousness. That's not even possible. Nor are you to reject God's righteousness and his righteous law. But with conviction of sin in the face of your own depravity, God desires you turn to Christ the Savior, the one who has fulfilled all righteousness and the one who even gives his righteousness to unrighteous sinner, sinners. That's why it says there in Romans chapter 1, if you look here, your theme for the book of Romans, turn there to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. He says there, he, he, he says, therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that is the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see here this beautiful thing here that the law is given of God to expose, intensify sin, to show it for, to be what it is that we might turn to Christ the Savior. We are to turn to the gospel, the righteousness of God for unrighteous sinners. Our unrighteousness and God's judgment upon unrighteousness is what is to turn us to Christ, where when we are unrighteous, God gives His eternal Son to fulfill all righteousness once again, to live the righteous life that we could not, to fulfill all of its demands, to die on the cross bearing all of God's judgment, all of His wrath, all of our sin and our guilt and our shame so that we would have no guilt and shame, but instead be just in front of God, be forgiven in front of God, be declared righteous in front of God, be adopted into His family where there is no shame, but confidence in front of our very own Savior where we would cry out, God and Father, help us. Because of Christ and his death on a cross, the fulfillment of the very things we could not do is granted to us and deliverance from the very thing God demands from us is given as well. In Christ, God provides the unrighteous, uh, unrighteous sinners the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be saved. So friends, once again, if you're looking at your own inescapable failure. Here, the passage calls us to repent of our sins and turn to Christ. You are coming to realize the very thing God himself, your maker and creator, wants you to realize as you face that your own failure, whether it be against the law of God or whether it be against your own conscience. And you can stand in front of God without guilt and without shame, but as a child of God, holy and righteous. I have a word of caution here before we conclude. With all this talk of not being able to do what you know is right, please do not think that Jesus Christ is your vehicle to what you define as living the good life, the moral life, doing what you want, fulfilling your own goals and affirmations. If that is what you think, then that is sin getting you to do the right thing, but for all the wrong reasons. Sin is not ultimately doing what you think, is, you think is wrong. It is doing what God defines as wrong. 
and going against God, your maker himself. Because of sin, the very wrath of God is coming. The wonderful news is that God desires rebels to be saved and experience the joy of living underneath and with Christ the King, who is holy, who is righteous, and who is good. Friend, if you know this guilt and shame facing inescapable failure, God simply says, repent of your sins and believe on me, and you will know hope in Jesus Christ. You will be saved. To conclude, if sin is our problem, Christ is our solution. We already talked about that sin is a thing that brings death and condemnation. Well, our answer is that we ought to turn to Jesus Christ who gives life. You look there at 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, there is no guilt. There is no death. There is only eternal life. No matter your sin, no matter the condemnation. We already looked at the fact that that sin is the thing that seizes good and uses it for evil. Here we are called to turn to Christ, whose spirit moves in his people to please God as children of God. The spirit helps us offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to God. We spoke about, too, that sin incapacitates. Well, here again, we're supposed to turn to Jesus Christ, who gives us spirit and causes us to walk in his ways. And so we have new desires, a new birth, desires for God. We talked, too, about how sin enslaves and take, takes people captive. Well, here, once again, we are called to turn to Jesus Christ. You look there at 8, two. The spirit of life can set you free in Christ Jesus. No matter how powerful indwelling sin is, it is no match for the Savior and His Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we see here how evil indwelling sin is and how it suffocates us, suffocates even our generally good desires, Father, we pray that we wouldn't find our salvation in ourselves. We know, Lord, that our, our solution is never found in ourselves, but is found in Christ who is outside of ourself. We thank you, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, we can, in fact, live new lives to Jesus Christ. We thank you for the death of Christ on the cross, who has once and for all defeated sin and death and Satan and made mockery of sin. Lord, we pray that we would learn to walk in the Spirit. Lord, we pray that Romans chapter 7 would not be the final word, or we wouldn't think it's the final word, but Lord, we would, be, we would just go on to live in Romans chapter 8. For those of us who are in Christ, we know that there is now no condemnation. We know that there is freedom to live in the Spirit, to live for Christ. Lord, help us know these things, even as we as Christians continue to wrestle with indwelling sin. In your name we pray, amen.